Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you and uh, your uh, notebook, take notes in, or or your journal, or the sermon section in the program, that would be fine as well. Uh, We do have, uh, obviously, full internet uh, access here in the the great room, and you can log on easily and uh, follow along in your uh, your, uh, uh, Bible on your tablet, and that would be fantastic as well. I hope you're ready to study God's Word together today because that's what we're going to be doing, Uh, just a simple verse-by-verse study of a section of Scripture in Mark chapter 6 and chapter 7. So have your Bibles open. We've been uh, running along here uh, in a series that we're going to end up today uh, called, uh, uh, called Storm Chasers. Jesus' apostles, his disciples, uh, were taught that that's exactly what they were to be. Uh, They were to chase into the storm rather than run away from the storm. And we find uh, that as they did that in chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Mark, finishing up here in the middle part of chapter 7, uh, we see them uh, running into major storms, not just in their lives, but in people's uh, lives in general as well. Now, this is a significant section of Scripture, as I've said for the last couple of weeks, because it comes at the very end of Jesus' second year of ministry. We're going to study here beginning in a couple of weeks. Uh, We will find out that Jesus moves intensively uh, into his very first and only foreign mission trip, and then he uh, begins moving directly uh, toward Jerusalem and the cross. But this finishes up year two of Jesus' ministry uh, in a very uh, specific uh, time and manner as he sends his apostles out for the first time to begin to preach the gospel. Now, in Mark chapter 6 and 7, the title of the message is uh, Peace for the Desperate. Peace for the Desperate. Today, what I want to do, I want us to look at three different groups of very desperate people in this story. You may be familiar with J.R. Tolkien. You may not be. Uh, one of the great writers uh, 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 of, uh, uh, of recent years. He describes a three-headed dragon that all of us face. Would you listen to his words? He says that it does not do to leave a dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. He says we all live near a three-headed dragon. One head is the world around us. Another is the devil who prowls toward us. And third is the heart that lies within us. Today what I want to do, I want to focus on that third head, the heart that lies within us, and all of us, no matter how long we have walked with Jesus or whether you're a follower of Jesus or or not, you may just be uh, beginning to become curious about him, all of us struggle with that third head of the dragon, the heart that lies within all of us. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you can write down the name of the first group of desperate people that Jesus meets in this story. Chapter 6, verse 53 through 56, Jesus meets people, number one, who are desperate for grace. People who are desperate for grace. Even if you go to the next slide, they'll, they'll see that. Uh, individuals who are desperate for grace. Now, verse 53, let's just do a verse-by-verse study uh, as we've been doing of uh, this section of Scripture. Verse 53 says, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gesenaret and anchored there. 
Now, you don't know anything about the village of Gesenaret, but uh, it was literally, uh, the word means garden. And it was known for its fertile soil, and lots of crops were grown there. It's kind of on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, but it was also, we find, in the story, not just a fertile place for crops to grow, but as a fertile place for the gospel to grow in people's hearts as well. Verse 54 and 55 explains. It says, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. And they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard Jesus was. They carried people to Jesus wherever they saw or heard that he was. I believe with all my heart that's why you've come to church today. You haven't just come to hear great music or hear sermon I believe that you've come to church today because you're beginning to hear that Jesus is in this house of prayer. I can tell you we're seeing people move to the cross at the end of our services to be prayed over and even be anointed with oil because of issues going in their lives. And can I explain to you why? Because Jesus, through the prayers of people, and by the way, every Sunday morning we have folks in our prayer room before services just asking for God to be present today. And uh, we sense his presence today. And you've come today longing to feel a touch from him because you are sensing in your spirit. You're sensing in your mind that God is present in this place. And he's longing to hear your needs. Verse 56 says, And wherever he went, into villages or towns or countrysides, the people placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged Jesus to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Now I have to backtrack just a little bit. If you were here several weeks back, Uh, I described for you uh, a piece of clothing that every Jewish man in Jesus' time wore. It was a prayer shawl, very similar uh, to this prayer shawl. Very similar to this. You'll notice there were tassels on the end of the prayer shawl. I've given you a couple of scripture references that you can go to to learn about, literally it's called the kanaf, by the way, the kanaf, uh, kanaf rather, Numbers chapter 15 describe what it should be like, what it ought to, uh, the appearance should be. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, there is a very significant passage of Scripture because there the Bible says there would be healing when the Messiah comes, there would be healing in, the wing, in his wings. The word literally is in his kanaf. The kanaf literally referred to the very edge of the prayer shawl. Now, the legend was this. The legend from Malachi's day all the way through Jesus' day was that when the, when the Messiah came, he would obviously be wearing a prayer shawl like every good Jewish man would be, and that in his prayer shawl, and literally in the kanaf of his prayer shawl, the edges of his prayer shawl, there would be healing. And people believed. When the Messiah came, and people were beginning to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that if they could come and touch the edge of his prayer shawl, there would be healing. You're saying to yourself right now, well, that's just weird. That just is dumb. I don't know that I believe that or not. Well, I'll throw this one at you. Do you know that in the book of Acts, the Bible says that uh, Peter, when he would walk through crowds, that his shadow on the ground 
if people walked through it, they would even be healed by that as well. Now, you may not believe that God has healing power, but I do, okay? And I don't choose how God chooses to bring about his healing power. And I'm not so sure that there was anything miraculous in that prayer shawl at all, but I do know that the God of the miraculous worked through Jesus to bring healing in people's lives. And people, as they touched Jesus, they received healing. It says all who touched him were healed. Let me give you this Greek word. It's the word sozo, S-O-Z-O. It's the word for healing. It's also the word uh, for say, uh, being saved. Literally, it means all those who came and touched Jesus were saved. You see, we want to separate out the two. Healing is one thing. You know, physical healing or emotional healing, uh, that's one thing. But being saved from sins, that's totally something different. But that's not the case in the New Testament. In the New Testament, both are joined together. And in the word sozo, saving, it means that through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on a cross, that not just were sins covered so that you can get to heaven, but a Bible says that the consequences of all of your sins are also covered and healed. Let me ask you this. What are some of the consequences of the fall in your life? Well, we get sick and we die, right? That, that's a consequence of sin. We have emotional struggles. So did Adam and Eve. We have guilt. We have all sorts of issues going on in our life. And what I want you to understand is that when Jesus comes to save us, it's not just to give us fire insurance to get us to heaven one day, but he wants to touch every part of our lives with healing. And that means spiritually and mentally and emotionally and physically. That's grace, folks. And that's the touch of grace that people were longing for in this story. Desperate people. I want to tell you that I know there's some desperate people right here today that are saying, man, if if Lord just doesn't touch my life right now today, man, I just don't know where I can go for hope and for help. Group number one, people who are desperate for grace. Group number two that we meet in this story are people that were desperate rule givers uh, or rule keepers, desperate rule keepers. Write that down. Verse 1 through 15 of chapter 7 describes this. Uh, this group of people. Now, verse 1 and 2, it says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around uh, Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, literally unholy. That is unwashed. Now, you know something about the Pharisees, right? The word means separate or holy. That's literally what it means. The Pharisees believed that they could only maintain holiness by separating themselves from anybody that they perceived was unholy or anything that they perceived that was unholy or unclean. Now I want you to notice this in the story. Jesus has just finished healing a huge group of people over some period of time. But when the Pharisees come to Jesus, what is it that they notice? Look in the scripture and I want somebody to tell me. What did they notice? Let me ask you first, what did they not notice? They did not notice. What? Say it out loud. They didn't didn't notice the healing that Jesus had done. What did they notice? Huh? Out loud. Y'all can say, y'all can talk. We're in church, all right? You look like you're so timid and shy, all right? Now, work with me. This is rough crowd this morning. Uh, What did they notice? They noticed dirty, unclean hands. Isn't that amazing to you? 
a whole huge group of people that had been sick, that had, whose lives had been destroyed, ravaged by all kinds of issues, had been saved. But these Pharisees came, and all they noticed were unclean hands. The question that needs to be asked, why? Well, verse 3 through 5 explains. It says in verse 3, the Pharisees uh, and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a uh, ceremonial washing. Uh, that has nothing to do with hygiene, by the way, all right? It wasn't soap and water. Uh, we've all seen the signs in the restroom that says, scrub for 20 seconds, you know. That wasn't the idea. Uh, it was just kind of a dipping ceremonial in, in, a, in a, a tub of water, holding to the traditions of the elders. That phrase is key. When they come from the mountain, uh, marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, key word, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, I don't want to get too deep in this idea of washing, uh, but I do need you to understand this. Uh, the word they hold to is literally they monitor. They were monitors, and it says the rules, or rather the traditions, were literally rules that they believed uh, had been passed down to them. Now, let me explain this to you, break it down for you, make it easy for you to understand. The Pharisees believed that God gave on the, on the mountain of, uh, Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments. You remember that. You've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. God gave uh, Moses the Ten Commandments, and they were on what? Out loud, tablets of what? Stone, all right? They were written down for Moses. Now, the Pharisees believed that not only did God give them those Ten Commandments, but also God gave to Moses uh, a, a knowledge of how to apply them in people's lives. Now, those were not written down. Uh, God didn't write them down and give them to Moses, they believed, but God just spoke it to them, to Moses. And Moses, in turn, told it to somebody else. And, and they, in turn, told it to somebody else. And it was a verbal, uh, uh, oral tradition that was passed down one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, over uh, a couple thousand years, about 1,500 years, until Jesus came on the scene. Now, let me ask you this question. Who do you think were the people in charge of passing along that moral code of rules. Don't have to think too hard here. The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Now this code was not written down until about 300 years after Jesus. It ultimately became uh, what was known as the Mishnah, uh, and the code was written down. But in Jesus' time, the, it was just simply an oral code that the Pharisees held on to and passed generation to generation to generation. Has anybody ever played a game, card game, or uh, any kind of game, uh, when whoever you were playing with kind of just made up the rules as you were going along? Anybody, anybody ever been there before? That was the process. Trust me. That was the process. It was a fluid, fluid kind of a thing that would change depending on the circumstances that came about. Now, Jesus attacks these rule monitors, the keepers of rules, head on by quoting Isaiah in verse 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, it says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Uh, their teachings are but rules taught by men. And they have let go of the commands of God 
and are holding on to the traditions of men. If you're keeping notes, there are a couple significant phrases there. Number one, Jesus says, by following your rules, your hearts are far from me. The word means there's a distance. The idea is that you are preventing access to God to your hearts. That's significant. Number two, Jesus says that by following rules, you have literally set aside the commands or the word of God. You've disregarded them. You've despised the word of God, the commands, by following your own rules. Now, Jesus gives an example in verse 10 through 13 that isn't really going to make a whole lot of sense at all to you, but let me, let me kind of throw it at you. We don't do this today. Uh, well, maybe, maybe we do. In Jesus' day, uh, the idea was that if you had an elderly p- parent that uh, had a financial issue going on in their, in their life, that you were supposed to take care of your parents, all right? Honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments, right? But the Pharisees had come up with a rule to get you out of that if you were a child. And all you had to do was declare your money or your assets corbans, literally a gift that's dedicated to God. Now, you never had to give that gift to God. All you had to do is say, you know, I want to help my parents, but I've taken all my money and I just dedicated it to God. You could spend it on anything else, and you're saying to yourself, that's ridiculous. Remember, we're talking about Pharisees. Jesus says in verse uh, 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But I say to you, if a man makes, uh, says to his father or mother, whatever you might otherwise have received from me is korban. That is a gift devoted to God. Then you, know, or then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. Now the issue isn't about clean hands or dirty hands. And the real issue really isn't about dedicating money uh, that you should be taking care of your parents with. Jesus talks about and nails what the real issue is going on here with rule keepers in verse 14 and 15. He says in verse 15, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. The phrase going into and coming out of both are is the image of a flowing river. And Jesus says there's nothing that flows into your life, no river that flows into your life that can make you unclean. You see, we all want to blame the uncleanliness of our hearts and our lives on the influence around us. Jesus said it's not those outside influences that make you unclean. Rather, it's what flows out, the river flowing out of your heart that causes you issues. There are two key problems that rule keepers face. And I want to tell you, there are a lot of rule keepers in the church today. I think one of the reasons why so many people stay away from the church is because of the rule keepers in the church today. 
There are a lot of rule keepers in the church. And by the way, rule keepers in the church always have a higher standard for other people than they have for themselves. Can I get an amen out of that, you know? I want you to follow a tougher list of rules than I want to follow. But there are two problems with rule keepers. Put up on the board. Number one, rule keeping can never save anyone. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says, those who rely on keeping the rules are under a curse because no one can be saved before God by keeping the rules. Number two, rule keeping can only change external behavior sometimes, but it will never change the heart. Some years ago, I, was, I, I volunteered as a police chaplain in Chesterfield County Police, and some years ago, we were doing a death notification seminar, and uh, in that seminar, uh, we had a, uh, a, an Islamic uh, imam minister and a Jewish rabbi and uh, a Catholic priest. I know that sounds like a setup for a joke. It's not, and, uh, but it sounds like it. But what they were doing, they were trying to teach us, Protestant guys, what to do if we're on scene uh, of a, and a person says, hey, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, can you do last rites, or I'm a, uh, Islam, uh, a Muslim, or I'm, uh, I'm a Jewish person. I will never forget, and quite honestly, there was much more in common between the religion of Judaism and Islam than I'd ever expected in the past. What they actually do and say and teach uh, and their death uh, issues uh, and how to handle bodies when they die and all that sort of thing. There were so many similarities about that. I, I say all this to say, that, uh, to say this. During the, his introductory uh, uh, statements to us, uh, the, the Jewish rabbi made this statement. and I, th- This has probably been 15 years ago, and I've never forgotten the statement And quite honestly, I've never forgotten the emptiness on his face when he made the statement. That was what struck me so deeply. He says, Judaism, or he said, Judaism is simply a behavioral religion that only tries to change how people live. Judaism is only a behavioral religion that only tries to change on the outside how people live. I think one of the reasons why I've held on to that phrase for so long and it's kind of haunted me is because so much of modern Christianity is just a behavioral religion. That's all it is. Simply trying to give us a few rules to follow so that we can change how we live. I want to come to church on Sunday and I want to get a, a few lessons how, on how to make my family do better. And so I get a few lessons, go home and try to put those into practice. Or I might try to uh, come and learn a few rules about ha- how to deal with problems in my life and I want to find some rules. But Christianity, just like that rabbi said, has become in so many places just a religion to try to change behavior. But folks, I want to tell you, rule keeping can only change behavior sometimes. But according to Jesus, it never, never is capable of changing the heart. Listen to what Jesus said. And by the way, did you realize it was the Pharisees that killed Jesus? And for good reason? This is what Jesus said sometime after uh, this scenario here. 
Matthew 23. Uh, I would suggest you'd read all of chapter 23 called Jesus is blasting the Pharisees one round after another after another. But in one paragraph, this is what he says. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones. And then he gets to the point. He says on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I got to ask you this question. Honestly, don't raise your hand, don't respond. Just think about it in your own mind. Aren't you more concerned with what people think about you than ultimately what God thinks about you? That's why we spend so much time trying to change the things we do rather than focus on the heart. One last group of people, and we want to do this, share this in the last couple of minutes, and then... Uh, go to communion. Jesus faces, number one, uh, he faced a, a, a group of people that were desperate for grace, touch of grace from Jesus, and Jesus gave them that touch of grace. There are a lot of people that that's all they want from Jesus. That's kind of what the video was pointing to. Do you want a God of rules or grace? No, I, I just want a God who, who just loves me and cares for me, no matter what, just cheat grace, just forgives me of my sin. That, that's a good part, place to start. If you don't know Jesus, that's exactly what he offers you, forgiveness of sin, but that's not, not all that he offers. On the other hand, we've met a group of people that are desperate rule keepers, and, and i got to tell you, churches are loaded with desperate rule keepers all their lives. All we've done is just try to keep rules, 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 just keep rules. But there's one last group of people that we focus on in this passage of Scripture, and those are the people that are desperate for pure hearts. And the longing of my heart is that you will begin, if you have not already become a person desperate for a pure heart, that that will capture your heart today. Verse 17, 19, Jesus, after he left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him this parable. I'll ask him about this parable. And Jesus said to them, are you so dull? Don't you get it? Don't you have any understanding? He says, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? It's not the river from the outside. For it doesn't uh, go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach and then out of his body. I, I got I to gotta give you this. Uh, the translator here was trying to be very, very couth, all right? And if he literally translated uh, this, uh, this passage of Scripture, you'd say, oh, my goodness, uh, Jesus said that. Can I tell you what literally what Jesus said? He said, folks, it's not about the food you eat that, that makes you clean or unclean because that doesn't impact your heart because you eat something. When you eat something, where does it go? It goes to your stomach, and then where does it go? Out of your body, and literally, Jesus said, and I read one commentator that said, it goes to the place where uh, human waste is expelled from the body. Uh, do I have to explain that? Uh, Jesus said, uh, folks, you eat something, it goes through your body, it winds up in the toilet. Okay, that's what we said in southwest Virginia. That's it. And it doesn't impact your heart. But then Jesus moves forward. 
Verse 20 and 23, he hits us between the eyes. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For with, from within a person, out of a man's or person's heart, comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly and all of these things come from inside and make a person unclean. I hate passages of scripture like this. I hate what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 and 21 when he says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. They are sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and discord, jealousy and fits of rage, selfish ambition and dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I hate sections of scripture like that. I wish they weren't in the Bible. You know why? Because they remind me of the three-headed dragon that I fight with every day. And folks, it isn't the issue that the devil is prowling around trying to tempt me, though that is an issue. And it isn't the issue that I live in a fallen, broken world and there are so many evil things in our world, though that is the case. The real issue is the third head on the dragon and that is the wickedness of my heart deep inside of me. Because when I read with honesty these sections of Scripture... I'm able to say, God, I thank you that that doesn't apply to me. But oh God, deep in my heart, that's who I am. And that's why I act the way I do. And that's why I sin the way I sin. Because out of the overflow of my heart, my actions follow. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Are you one of those desperate followers of Jesus, longing for a pure heart? Not just an outside appearance that everybody would look at and say, oh, that's a religious person. But a person that deep inside from the heart is pure and holy and godly. And because of that, your actions begin changing as a result. Folks, the Bible calls this lifelong process for the disciple of transforming the heart into a heart that's holy as being sanctified. And I, I know that people today don't like religious, Bible-sounding words, but Jesus used it, and the Apostle Paul used it multiple times. Being sanctified literally means having your heart changed into the image of Jesus. And folks, if you're a Christian, that's what being a Christian is all about. It's not about being happy. It's, not about, it's about being holy. It's not about, man, God just blessing your life. It's about you being changed into the image of Jesus from the inside out, from the heart into your actions, not from the outside in, from the actions to the heart. The bad news is, can I tell you the bad news first and then the good news? The bad news is you can't change your heart. Look at me. Look, look at me. 
you can never change your heart. And that's bad news. The good news is you don't have to. That's the work of the Holy Spirit inside your life. I want to give you two ways, uh, two most prominent ways that God uh, does this. The Holy Spirit works in your life to, to bring about this sanctification process, and then we're done. Just write these two things down, uh, and, 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 and I'll give them to you. Uh, number one, he uses his word, God's word, God's word to change us. You know, when I read God's word to find grace, I find grace. When I read God's word just to find rules, I can find plenty of rules to follow. But when I read God's word, as I did early this morning, and said, God, would you take your word and would you examine my heart and would you convict me in my heart of my sin? There it is that real change and sanctification happens. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, and nothing in all of creation is hidden from, God, uh, from God's sight. I would encourage you, use your time of studying the word every single day. And if you're not in the word every single day, I don't care what you say about being a follower of Jesus. You're not following Jesus if you're not in the word every single day. But don't read it just to find grace. Don't read it just to find rules to live by. Read it to find ways that God can transform your heart. Second way, number one, first way that God transforms you into the image of Jesus is through his word. Second way is through the storms that you face. You might remember that the disciples on two occasions in this section of Scripture have uh, faced storms. One time Jesus was asleep in a boat and Jesus calmed the storm, peace be still. Just last week we read about another story where Jesus came walking on the uh, water and showed his, his, uh, uh, man, his glory to them as he was about to pass them by. I want you to understand that nothing can sanctify you better and more than the storms that you face. Would you listen to this verse of Scripture? We love to quote Romans 8, 28, but would you listen to it in context? Romans 8, 26 through 29 says, We do not know how we ought to pray for. If you're in a storm, your prayers most often, Get me out of the storm, God. But we don't know that that's the best prayer, prayer to pray. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Verse 28 says, In all things... God works for the good of those who love him and have been called for his purpose. And what is that good? Verse 29 explains. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, the word sanctified, changed into the image of Jesus, into the likeness of his son. Close with this question. What storms are, you chasing, are, are chasing you today? The tendency is to try to run away from them, hide from them, hope that they will go away not to run into the storms. But storm chasers are not people that run away from storms, even the storms in their lives. As hard as it is, and as much as it hurts, you run into the storm because it's only in the storm that you meet the grace of God and that you see His glory as it begins to change your life. That's storm chasers. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for who you are and what you have done in our lives. Today, as we have, Father, the opportunity to be able to uh, look now at uh, the table that Jesus gave his apostles the night before he was betrayed.
And on the table there was uh, bread and there was uh, uh, wine. This morning, Father, we have bread and juice that everyone here will be able to uh, receive as it's passed by. Father, I just pray that uh, you would cause people to look deep on the inside, take uh, an assessment not of what people see on the outside, but the true condition of their heart. And out of that, Father, it amazes us that you would love us anyway because, Father, you can see the true condition of our heart. And even with that, you sent Jesus to die on the cross. And so, Father, bless the bread and the cup as we receive it today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Receive the Lord's Supper, then let's worship the Lord today.